dedicated to creating and discussing alternative perspectives on sports and art. I am your host, Abigail Smithson, and my returning guest today is Professor of Sociology at the University of Minnesota, Douglas Hartman, who was previously on the show to discuss his book, Midnight Basketball. Today's conversation features a discussion about his book, Race, Culture, and the Revolt of the Black Athlete, the 1968 Olympic protests and their aftermath. This book encompasses the time leading up to the protests during which the Olympic Project for Human Rights, led by Professor of Sociology Harry Edwards, was attempting to organize a boycott of the 1968 Games by black athletes. From there, we learn about the actual moment where Tommy Smith and John Carlos raised their fists on the medal stand in Mexico City and the legacy of their actions. What I appreciate so much about this book is the focus on the iconic image that was made of the protest that night and how that image has lived on and been used for celebratory, educational, and even malicious reasons. I highly recommend this book for the Dear Adam Silver photographer listeners and for those of you who are interested in the history of sports and protest in the United States. Thank you so much to Doug for coming on and sharing his work and thoughts, especially about how this action taken in 1968 connects to how we see athletes protesting and speaking out about racial justice today. Since this is my first episode of 2021, Happy New Year to all of you, and thank you so much for listening. So I am finally holding your book, Race, Culture, and the Revolt of the Black Athlete, the 1968 Olympic protests and their aftermath. And I have to say... Um, all of the sort of hubbub around the post office this year. Uh, this was like the real getting your book delivered to my house was the biggest challenge. Like I was oh. like, this isn't meant to be, this, you know, whenever I would check the uh, routing number, it was always just still at the original, you know, kind of place where it was dropped off. I called the bookstore, you know, it's just crazy. So uh, anyways, once it arrived, uh, about six weeks after I ordered it, it was a, a real moment, and um, I'm so excited to get to, to unpack it with you. It should be fun. I, I'm glad you persevered, uh, <laughs> or the <laughs> people bringing it persevered, however it happened. I'm glad you got it. Sure. I, it was my, I tend to be like a post or USPS, I'm like their biggest fan, you know, I, I, I am diehard. Uh, but this was just the one thing where it was like, how is oh. this possible? You know, so um, I thought maybe we could start just with sort of how you came to write about this event, the the protests of Tommy Smith and John Carlos at the 1968 Olympics and all that went into it. But to begin with, I think I am most interested to start the first time that you saw this image, your experience with this image, maybe pre your time as a sociologist, just what your relationship was like with this image before you sort of dived into the history? Wow, yeah. Um, so I actually am not 100% sure when's the first time I saw it. Because it's so ubiquitous, I think I must have encountered it when I was a kid in the 70s and teenager in the early 80s, just because I watched a lot of sports and was fascinated with the Olympics. But the first time that it registered as a thing that I was interested in and maybe wanted to learn more about. Uh, I have a very distinctive memory of that. It was the um, 1998 or 98 eight 
88, I should say, um, during the um, Korean Olympic Games. I was watching the Olympics um, and I, I have some kind of montage or historical uh, rec retrospective that they were doing and it popped up and why it registered in particular was I was in the middle of being an undergraduate history major at the University of Chicago and looking for something to write a senior project about. And I was really interested, a lot of my classwork had been at kind of bringing together things about race and kind of contemporary, um, recent civil rights history and popular culture and sports. And I just thought I was kind of this idealistic um, notion that I could do a project that would speak to all the things I'm interested in and, and be a win-win-win on all those fronts. And um, I didn't know at the time, but I saw that image and I thought, well, something's going on there. Uh, there's, there's a racial story, there's a history to it. Um, I knew there was some connections to 60s radicalism and protest. Uh, and, and so the kind of combination of civil rights history, society and social change and sport all seemed to kind of cohere in that image. Um, and I, it resonated with me. And I remember going to the library the next day and looking for a little bit of history and story of it. And it wasn't super easy to find at that time. So that really got me like, I could do something about this. And even if there is, a, is other things written, I thought it would be kind of a fun challenge and one that would live up to the kind of topics I was interested in, the ideas I had. So that was the start of it um, for me, really. It was, it was originally an undergraduate history project. Wow. So when did it, when did it take on, I mean, clearly this was a subject, I mean, or this photo and this event embodied several subjects that you were able to sustain an interest in well past your senior year of college to write a book about it. Um, so how did you, beyond that initial project, like wh when did you also decide this is something that, you know, I really can, can, uh, go deeper on this subject. Yeah. I mean, I was obsessed with it in a couple different periods of my life. I mean, so for sure this undergraduate paper, and then I ended up doing my master's thesis on that too. And then I let go of it for a while. Uh, but then after several years of doing other kinds of things, I did come back to it. And it was, you know, that was my dissertation work in my first book. Um, in fact, I remember somewhere between finishing the dissertation and turning it into a book, I remember having these fantasies. This is how obsessed I was with it, where I thought I was just gonna spend my whole career writing variations on what I learned about sports and race and history from this image, um, different vignettes, different dimensions. So I was pretty obsessed with it. Um, but I think um, one of the things that continually drew me back to it, especially once I got past the kind of, I'd say, early naive history undergrad experience where I was just thought I was going to tell the story or something. Um, and there was a story to be told. I mean, I think one of the things that's important about it is it's not, it's not an image that comes out of nowhere. Um, there, the image itself has a year-long history of protest behind it. It has a much larger history of uh, racial progress and challenge from the African-American community throughout the 20th century. Um, it itself has proved controversial and, and lasting. So there's all these dimensions that are already there. But I think what kept drawing me back to it, especially as a more, you know, in graduate school, 
and as a dissertation and eventually a book was that I think it had so many tentacles and dimensions that it really revealed to me um, a lot about the ways that sport and race, politics and change are all juxtaposed and play off of each other in our culture. So it was one of those kind of explosive moments where something powerful was created because a number of different themes were brought together in a very challenging, provocative way. Um, and all of those themes also had histories, had people, had stories and broader social and cultural dynamics attached to them. So I think that all those different dimensions and angles um, sustained my obsession and gave me new things to think about. After I'd kind of finished one chapter, there was something else ahead. Um, and, and so really it, it was, I would say, a kind of scholarly uh, intrigue about using this image, this moment and what it revealed to better understand, I, I, if I said it in a word or two, it's probably to better understand the ways in which sport contributes to racial change and progress and where the li real limitations of that are. Um, just because I think that seeing how Smith and Carlos mobilize themselves and their bodies shows that possibility. But then as I studied it, seeing the opposition, the hostility they created also alerts us to the to the real limitations and barriers in our culture um, with respect to social change in general, but especially with respect to racial justice um, in, in the US and, and around the world. And I think for me, what, what I find really fascinating about your obsession with it is this, you know, it's stemming from a photograph um, to start with and a photograph that kind of sits in the back of all of our minds, but we don't know how to like tether it to other instances necessarily or how it plays. Uh, and even before I had read more about it, you know, I thought that probably Tommy Smith and John Carlos were the best of friends, you know, later on in life or that, you know, I just had made assumptions thinking about uh, two people that would, uh, you know, work together on this and, and risks a lot together um, and how that image came to uh, define their lives. I had a similar uh, obsession in grad school with the napalm girl image by uh, Nick Oot, which has definitely took on a life of its own and can be put in many, I mean, can be sort of put in different contexts and used in different contexts as an iconic image rather than, you know, the backstory to that image as well, having all these uh, different, different factors that how that, how that situation came to be. And even the fact that the Tommy Smith and John Carlos image is not a singular moment, but like a whole song, a whole national anthem, you know, that their, their yeah. fists were in the air. And so it's this, this image that's so powerful, but it was minutes. Um, so that's, that's a really impactful, uh, thing to consider when, when thinking about, you know, how we, how we treat the photograph. Yeah. I, it's, there's several things in there that we could unpack that you just alluded to. Um, one of them is how, is the kind of protest, the ceremony and protest act that is captured in that iconic image. You know, it was an event. I mean, it took several minutes to unfold. And I think part of the power of that image, which has stayed pretty prominent in our culture, but even though meanings and interpretations have shifted dramatically over 50 years, um, but I think part of the power of the sing and singularity of the image is even though it's a still photograph, 
we're very familiar with that ceremony and we have a sense of 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 action and and um, drama and how that unfolds in an olympic ceremony because the olympic ceremony itself is such a global kind of ritual icon so i think the image you look at it and even if you don't know much about any of it um, you kind of know the Olympic ceremony and you know what you just alluded to that, oh, there was a national anthem played and they had to have their medals bestowed upon them and they had to step up onto the podium. And, you know, so you know enough to know this wasn't just a still picture. There was something going on here. Um, and then I think we also bring to it uh, in particular, you know, when I my kind of analysis of that protest moment and of the ritual borrows a lot from my mentor in scholarly sports studies, John Macklin at the University of Chicago, um, who kind of talked about, has done lots of research on Olympic ceremony and what makes it so powerful and how it juxtaposes our individual human identities with our national identities and then the grand universality of humanity. The Olympic ceremony is built around all those, those things, but it's those three things. And the kind of subnational collective identities are not well represented in Olympic ideology or symbology, and that's intentional. Um, but what Smith and Carlos did is they took that ceremony and inserted forcibly, visibly their own bodies as symbols of race and blackness. And, and so in John's words, they supercharged the ceremony and made it talk about or be about an identity that Olympic symbolism actually doesn't have a very good way to deal with. Um, anyway, all that is to say, I think some of that, even if you don't know any of that um, in a self-conscious way, some of those things that as, as it gets unpacked intellectually, it's not hard to understand that because we're very familiar with, those ceremony, with that ceremony and how that works. Um, so we see that. Uh, and then again, I think the other thing about the image is is not the image itself, the text, but the context. And how over the last 50 years, our history has shape-shifted and changed. And, and even though that image is the same, it's really radically impacted how we perceive it culturally, uh, the memories we bring to it, what gets dropped out. Um, you know, in 1968, this was the uh, radical statement of, of that polarized America um, by the time I was interested in it in the 1980s, those rough edges had been softened. The radicalism had been downplayed. Um, the past almost forgotten. And it survived this kind of icon memory of civil rights heroism. So just kind of like we did with Martin Luther King or um, Muhammad Ali, uh, we create national icons that creates kind of a, a soft, fully acceptable image that we can all appreciate. But uh, at the same time, there's so many other layers and dimensions. So for a scholar, I was always really fascinated with that. And I would say one of the first things I did kind of between doing this as an undergrad and a graduate, I was really interested in all the, just, I was obsessed with finding where this image appeared. Um, maybe like the Napalm Girl, um, like all the different textbooks you found it in, weird cultural places, late eighties, you know, Spike Lee was had the image with the with some of his, the T-shirts and memorabilia he was selling, and in the movies he was making, it was on in advertising campaigns. And I was just fascinated with the, its ability to shape shift and 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 change and 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 
and transform how people what they thought it was, even though it was that core image. Uh, right, the same so that, thing. That's, yeah, so that's why I get back to you. I think that it really interesting thing about it being a still photograph, really. Uh, but there's so much happening to create it, and that gets built around it. That that's really what gave me so much to work with as a as a, a scholar and cultural critic and historian. I think when you use the word supercharged, that that image has so it's I mean still image where the the figures are actually holding still as well it has so much uh energy in this this image this this pose that's just like you know you, i think of like a lightning bolt coming out of them you know it's just like it's so charged well i i really i don't even know if i need to say a lot more i completely agree with you i mean that's to me what's amazing about when you see it it feels like living it feels charged it feels vibrant even though it's still and has been the same still image for over 50 years. Uh, but I, I think some of those things I was alluding to in terms of the artist saying ceremony of the history that gave rise to it. These guys were trying to boycott, they tried to organize a boycott of the entire Olympic games uh, from black Americans. And then the history after that, it, there's so much vibrancy around it. But like you said, there's energy in the image itself that just helps to kind of propel our imaginations and give us so many different possibilities of meaning and purpose to build around it. Um, even though the image really, you know, hasn't changed in 50 years since they're up on the victory stand. Yeah, it's, um, it's incredible. And I think there's this book that I've read called Listening to Images. And I feel like this is an image that you can, because also that experience of maybe being in an arena or being at a baseball field or something where there's that kind of like dull, low hum of people kind of talking to each other. Um, and just that also this, this stadium could, you know, was filled with boos uh, and, and jeers and yeah. uh, just uh, angry noise towards um John Carlos and Tommy Smith. So it's just that it just has, there's life there uh, in this yeah, image. I agree. And you know, another, it just is reminding me, um, I don't know how big the image, I think the image in the book really just shows the three athletes. Uh, but there's some versions of that picture that pan out a little more and you see the Olympic authorities um, that gave the medals. Uh, one of whom was one of the um, champions of the Olympic big 400 meter, I think it was from the 1920s, who's the featured composite character from Lord uh, Chariots of Fire. Um, so he was this tremendous athlete himself. He looks like kind of a shriveled old white guy in the pictures. <laughs> but um, like thinking about the energy, the image, and, and like you mentioned, the playing of the national anthem, everybody had to stand still this whole time, even though you know they were seething, you know they wanted to pull these guys off of the stage get them out of sight as soon as possible. But the ceremony, nobody wants to interrupt the national anthem and stop the ceremony. And so that's like that palpable energy and tension is just packed into that. Absolutely. And and that John Carlos and Tommy Smith did interrupt it in a way that did not allow for anyone else to also, I mean, it just, it is such a, it was such a, um, it's very smart. Uh, how they went about this protest. And I, I really want to read this quote because you mentioned your mentor. Uh, I think he is mentioned here uh, in this, I think it's the introduction. So rarely is human expression as focused, elegant and eloquent as Smith and Carlos's was that day. Whatever else we discover about their politics, personal lives and ideological commitments, this gesture must be recognized as John McAloon has suggested as an act of inspiration, passion, and originality, 
of sheer expressive genius, truly by these standards or any others, a work of art. I appreciate you reading that. That, So good. (laughs) That's one of the insights that I'm most committed to and proud of. I I really do think it's an, it was a a moment of of sheer brilliance and genius. Um, I don't know that they self-consciously thought about every element, but I think they had such a deep intuitive understanding of what they stood for and how they could take this ceremony that's available to them and shape it to their purposes. Um, it's, it's quite an amazing moment. And I guess I'll say one other thing to really accentuate that. And this is one of the central things about my version of the history of my book that I think is really important. I think in contrast to some other folks who've written about it, I really did want to center the agency, the creativity, the brilliance of Smith and Carlos in the moment. Um, Cause a lot of us that write about this focus a lot on the year of protest they spent and the, their activism with other athletes, with other sports leaders, with other activists, you know, you know, Martin Luther King was involved with this. Um, Harry Edwards, the famous sports sociology was their sociologist was their teacher. Um, but it was really Smith and Carlos that pulled off this moment and they did it against all odds in particular because most of what the rest of the activist community wanted them to do was to boycott the games. Um, and, and I think they didn't, partly because they're competitors and like you, you don't play the game, you don't have a chance to win it. You don't have a chance to be the real actor and, and person in, in society that you're meant to be. Um, but I think, so they didn't do that, but I think they also intuitively realized a, a point that now is people, our athlete activists talk about a lot is the power of the platform the power of being a champion and having all eyes focused on you, um, that they had a more powerful stage um, as champions um, than they would have as non-participants. There would have been costs for non-participants, they would have gotten some attention, uh, they might have forced some issues, but the choice that they made to compete, the brilliance they exhibited to win, and then the passion they brought to the Olympic victory stand um, I, I mean, I just, I'm, I'm still, even as you read that quote, I, I get chills um, in, in my respect for what Smith and Carlos did that day so many years ago. And can you explain a little bit about how they sort of, how that protest came to be, like their, the, the protest that they did together, separate from the proposed boycott, but just the, the, the things that they chose to war to wear when they were up on the stand and like how kind of that was curated in a way. There were little symbolic elements that they brought in. I mean, the, the larger story of the collapse of the boycott is a different one. Um, I think we'll focus, you're asking me to focus really on the moment itself. <clears throat> um, and there is some, by the way, uh, some tension on this, even between Smith and Carlos about who really envisioned the protest. Um, I tend to put a lot of the emphasis on Tommy Smith, partly because he's the one who was really the recognized world champion for the whole year leading up to the games. He's the one, along with Lee Evans, who was a 400 medal gold, 400 meter gold medalist that year. They were this, the real student at, the real athlete leaders of the boycott effort. 
um, Carlos was, um, that all happened at San Jose State. Carlos was still competing at Texas throughout a good chunk of the year. He came to San Jose State later in the spring. And so was a latecomer, not only to that track and field team, but to the whole activist movement. Now it wasn't, I mean, he was activist oriented, but he wasn't really part of that movement in the same way. Um, and I also, there was also a lot of competitive tension between all these guys. I mean, they were all world champion, world record holders, some of the greatest collection of sprinters in all of sports history. Um, we're, we're working, we're competing with each other, even as they're working together to protest. Uh, but I, Smith was the recognized leader and spokesman of that movement for the year leading up to the games. Um, and then I think fast forward even more to that moment. Um, I think it's pretty clear that he's the one who brought the gloves um, because, and, and I think I've read a lot of different accounts of this. Uh, he's the one who brought the gloves, who kind of gave the instruction to both Evans and to Peter Norman, the Australian who was on the stand. I'm gonna do something. Uh, if you wanna follow along, that'd be great. Watch what I do. Um, but he had the gloves, which symbolized, you know, kind of the strength of black America. He had a string of beads um, to signal, signal the kind of African roots. Um, he, they took off their shoes uh, in homage to the poverty of black America and the oppression black Americans faced. When they raised their arms, the right and the left together, Smith is the one who explained that to Howard Cosell in the interview afterwards as symbolizing black unity. Um, they were careful, by the way, not to use the, notion, the word power. They didn't explicitly call this a black power suit. Smith was actually a pretty conservative guy. I mean, he was no radical in a lot of ways. He was uh, in ROTC. He was planning to go into the military before all this uh, came down. Um, but he was also really compelled to use his status as an athlete to speak to the ongoing challenges of the civil rights community in the black, black or civil rights movement in the black community. And so I really think it was he, um, leader of the movement, gold medalist, uh, who everyone followed his lead uh, as the national anthem started to play. He started, initiated the action. Um, for me, it's even kind of apparent in the body language. It's to me, Smith, who is really the um, assertive uh, uh, of the two, of the three on the stand, stand. The others are part of it, but I see that leadership in his kind of body posture. Um, and then again, as I said, I think he's the one who not only envisioned it, but then who really explained the symbolism um, in, in, um, to, to, the, to the national and international audiences in the interviews, the couple, only couple of interviews he ever did for 20 years um, in that immediate aftermath. By the way, my other favorite part of the protest for, that is often overlooked, I think I mentioned it is, uh, Smith talked to Howard Cosell in that first couple of hour, uh, day or so after the interview. He never spoke of that for 20 years. And I think part of the power of the protest is he didn't, he let the image speak for itself for many, many years. Even to this day, he's not one prone to talk a ton about it. Um, I think that's part of the protest is our bodies are up here. You figure out what this means. You try to make sense of what we're saying, what we're supercharging and all that's embodied in seeing a black body on an Olympic victory podium. I, I think also, um the sort of sacrifice in some way to, I mean, that image has defined both of their lives in many ways as the 
same with the napalm girl Im- image as well. Uh, and it's just these images kind of just like become a part of that person and they're, they're sort of stuck with them. And so to just say like, that's all I can maybe give. I mean, this is me like projecting, but just that like, I've already given you this, you know, like to, to, to not be, to not be asked for more. And, and Colin Kaepernick, of course, has also been, he does not speak publicly that often and was very clear in the beginning of his protest about why he was protesting and what he was doing and what it meant. And, uh, I, I think that that has its own, its own power to, to, to not feel obligated to answer to to the larger forces yeah yeah i think there's some truth there i i don't know these young they're young when they do this these that they fully know what the consequences are going to be um you almost think if they did man would you have done all that over i mean you know they both smith and carlos both floundered for some years after this sure you know they're professional they kind of envisioned like smith if he wasn't going to the military he thought he might become a pro football wide receiver. That's what some track and field athletes did after 1968, Mexico city, that was off the table. Um, Carlos tried to make a career professionally in track. I think he had, I know he had a couple relationships fall apart. Um, they've lived with this. Um, um, even as they, you know, Smith ended up teaching sociology and being, um, you know, kind of a leader in, in his communities, but uh, this is always part of him. Um, and same for Carlos and um, you live with it, you make sense of it. Um, but again, I, I really do think for a portion of the time, the refusal to talk very much about it, it is not difficult to construe as part of the statement. Mm-hmm. And when you mentioned before that they didn't use the word power uh, when discussing, you know, raising their fists in the air, um, I think that speaks to, uh, of course, an issue that we're seeing today about how phrases and words, uh, the media latches onto them. A certain a certain members or certain uh, chunks of the media latch onto them and then like twist them in many ways to to represent a certain thing. And then if you use that phrase, then you are associated with that thing, even though that might not have been the original idea. So I think we see that a lot with with Black Lives Matter. And I think that this what comes up over and over again in this book is like, you know, Avery Brundage keeps saying like, oh, we don't want politics at the Olympics. Like, get the politics out of here, you know, in a much more eloquent way than I just said, even though I, you know, I'm not going to say that he's eloquent because he seems like kind of a jerk. Uh, But just this idea that, you know, this was the Olympic, originally the protests were planned under the Olympic Committee or the boycott under the Olympic Committee for Human Rights. And just to like kind of dismiss this idea of, of, that they were pushing for human rights, not that was not a political issue and should not be seen as one, I think is the same thing we we just saw recently with, you know, Kelly Loeffler, uh, Loeffler, whatever her last name is, um, telling, you know, the Atlanta dream, like, stop protesting. You know, we can't mix politics and sports. Meanwhile, she's a sitting United States senator who owns 50 percent of a um, professional basketball right. team. Uh, it's just this idea that this is like the same formula, this twisting, this, this saying, like, this is part of your political, political yeah. outlook that you deserve to be treated as everyone else is. Well, I, I do think one of the central, um, defining cultural tensions for all of this and so many other things about sports is it's, is the relationship to politics. 
what we mean by politics and, and sports role in that. I should be careful. I, I was just thinking as you met, you started that question by thinking about power. I, I think he did talk about power, but what, the phrase he specifically didn't use was black power. Mm -hmm. uh, he knew that phrase. I mean, part of the delicate balancing act that they were trying to make at the time was um, how to move past the limits of civil rights activism into activism that spoke to deeper structural issues, um, structural racism, um, longer term problems. A lot of that quickly moved into becoming claims about black power. And that's what they didn't want to say that. I think they didn't see themselves, at least initially, as quite that radical. They were trying to do a balancing act, I think, between the, and this is what the movement at the time was breaking down along, civil rights versus black power. How do you hold that center together? Um, you know, we forget it now. Martin Luther King died in a lot of ways a broken man because actually he didn't have much of a place in the movement because he was too conservative for the black power radicals and um, but too radical for the civil rights, traditional civil rights leaders. Smith and Carlos were, and the whole sports protest movement was caught in the same thing. But I think your point that I think is really right is that part of that is the radical, like how far we can go for racial justice and human rights, but also what's political and what, how, what are the limits of social change in any domain? Um, and that's where sport has this kind of historic idea that's really contradictory, where it wants to believe that it is a force for positive social change and a greater good, um, and yet also is not political. And it can't always have it both ways, though that's literally what it wants. Um, and so the, often what happens in that context is that social change movements are acceptable as long as they're kind of morally acceptable across a wide swath. But when people start not agreeing with the movement, that's when they start calling it political. Um, and I think that's what we see playing out today in, in a lot of ways too is with the Black Lives Matter is if you're in agreement with it, you don't think it's political because it's a, it's a greater good. It's a human rights issue. It's a something we should all agree on. Um, but if you aren't sympathetic to that, it's too far, which especially because that's when it comes, becomes protest or activism. But in sport, that's particularly when it becomes politics. And it's a very kind of simplistic understanding of politics and its relationship to sports. Um, but let me give an example. One piece of research that I did uncovered when I was doing the book that I think speaks not only to the 68 Olympics, but to today. Um, in, in the early 70s, Richard Labchek, who's a kind of well-known popular figure, popular sociologist around race and sport, did a survey of white and black Americans about their opinions about Smith and Carlos's protest. Um, and they found really, found really diametrically opposed responses, kind of like some of the early responses of Take a Knee with Colin Kaepernick, where about two thirds of black Americans really supported what they had done. Um, and a third were critical of it for a variety of reasons. And it was really reversed for white Americans where a third were supportive and two thirds weren't. But what I always was really interested in that survey, that poll was there was one thing that white and black Americans all agreed on 
that was that sports shouldn't be political. Um, and so what's interesting in that is that what you realize is that black Americans, they didn't see Smith and Carlos as doing politics. They saw that as a stand for something broader than politics, something bigger than politics, something that's about human rights or moral justice or, 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 or just mor a moral claim that we should all agree with. Um, but they completely agree that politics have no place here. They just didn't think that movement for racial justice was a political thing. They thought it was more of a moral thing. And I think that's some of the kind of cultural structures we inherited today where people still have that same kind of easy um, um, arithmetic in our heads that easily labeling of things that we really agree with and think are morally good. Those aren't politics. That's, social, that's something that transcends politics and often it's matter of rights, maybe it's a matter of justice, um, but that's not politics for some Americans. And then the things we don't agree with are politics. Um, and so that, that's a tricky thing. And, and bringing it to today, I think one of the really interesting things the last year um, was how um, last spring, even before George Floyd was killed, the rising um, levels of support for Black Lives Matter um, that translated to higher levels of acceptance, if not support of athlete activism. Um, and I'm still kind of puzzling through, is that because we have changed our notions of sport and politics, or is it actually reflecting a very much older pattern of the, that we, when it's movements we're in support of and we see as in service of, of a greater social good and a broader social justice, we don't call those politics. We think of those in more moral, um, almost religious terms sometimes. Um, but that, that's some of the dynamics I think that's playing out. The one other thing I'd mention, there's tons of political stuff in sports that nobody ever thinks of as politics. You know, that, that we play national anthems, right. that we have military flyovers. Um, if that's not politics, what is? And, and it's especially um, something that a lot of um, international folks, when they come to the United States and go to our sporting events, they're like, why do you do all that? That's so political. And Americans, even once we're radical pol politically, we often don't even see the politics there. The politics there is creating notions of nationalism and patriotism, notions of national community that in an abstract way, I think are deeply political acts. But what they're not is the kind of institutional politics of Democrats and Republicans of who's right and who's wrong that are the kind of conventional categories of politics that for Ameri many Americans um, are about as far as we go in our lack of sophistication of understanding the relation between nations and political institutions and, and actual power. Yes, and those those rituals that happened before just an average Tuesday night basketball game in Minneapolis or Phoenix or wherever uh, are um, also trying to like, I, I would say reinforce a certain idea of what patriotism is, you know, what patriotism looks like, like what, what it means to, to be a patriot. And I think that uh, juxtaposing that against the, this image that we see uh, of Tommy Smith and John Carlos or the image of Colin Kaepernick uh, kneeling or whatever it is. It's just um, that maybe our understanding of patriotism, th that it could come in, in many forms. Yeah. And it's really insidious the way that our ideas all come together on this. Um, 
my uh, colleague, former student collaborator now, Kyle Green, I wrote a piece on this a couple of years ago. I think you know Kyle, yeah. um, where he talked about this. We called it the strain politics and sports, strange secret bedfellows, because they're so deeply implicated together in a lot of ways, but we don't see that. And we it, and 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 I think we don't see it when we disagree with it as well as when we agree with it sometimes. Um, in the last few years, I think a lot of people were very quick to point out um, our former president you playing politics when he would criticize Colin Kaepernick or call out LeBron James. Um, but Kyle uh, just recently tweeted in the, I saw in the, in um, Henry Aaron's death, Joe Biden had a really short, very powerful moving statement about, about Aaron and his overcoming of racial prejudices and standing as American icon. But Kyle mentioned that was unbelievable politics. That was President Joe Biden using a sports figure in this case to create a vision of unity um, that he's trying to convey with his early days of his presidency. But that's all about politics. That's trying to use the symbolism, the emotional power that surrounds our engagement in sports and our fandom and our idolatry of great stars and bring us together. Okay, maybe you don't call that politics, maybe you call it patriotism, maybe you call it nationalism, but in a more analytic way, that's what politics is. That's one dimension of politics is creating a national community, figuring out who's in and who's out, where solidarity is and what we should care about. And, and I think actually a lot of our presidents, a lot of our political leaders use sport all the time to make political statements and acts. And the kind of scary thing is how that happens right in front of us, right to us, and we don't even see the politics that are happening. Um, we tend really only to see it when it's something we don't agree with. As always, I am happy to share that this episode of Dear Adam Silver is brought to you by Bookman's. The last item I purchased from Bookman's was a 2021 planner. And who doesn't enjoy a new planner to start a clean slate? I'm still feeling the excitement from starting a new year and the refresh and the recharge that comes with. And Bookman's is doing the same. They have so many wonderful things going on right now, including featuring the work of local Tucson artists Sombreros and Sparrows at their Midtown store, Blind Date with a Book, and their virtual story time celebrating Black authors. Don't forget, Bookman sells used books, records, movies, musical instruments, and more, and is a wonderful community-oriented store where the shelves are stocked with items brought in by the community. In addition to shopping, you can also trade your own used items in at Bookman's for cash or store credit. Bookman's has curbside pickup for books ordered ahead of time and for selling in trades. Please visit www.bookmans.com for more information and details about events and to find your nearest location. And remember, Bookman's has cool covered. And what do you think, just in, I mean, I think that this this past summer is so recent that it's hard to look back on it maybe with a with a real perspective, but just the, the Wildcat uh, boycott that happened in uh, the NBA in the bubble over the summer where part of their power, because, you know, they were all sort of stuck in this bubble uh, and uh, were not able to leave, the the boycott seemed to maybe whereas the power for um, uh, John Carlos and uh, Tommy Smith was like showing up and being in this place and using this victory to uh, enact this protest, a part of 
what happened, you know, the withholding of the playing by the players uh, in the NBA or the the Bucks and the Magic who started it, um, felt like it it also carried like significant weight more so than 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 playing that game and 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 kneeling again um, as they had been and uh, or as many of them had been and and the you know there's been some criticism of. Uh, you know, some of the players called Obama, uh, President Obama, to see what, you know, he thought they should do. And uh, I, I actually at the time thought it was pretty amazing that that they had a uh, that they could just call a former president yeah, to get his opinion. Like, I thought that was pretty awesome, you know, that that was something that they felt comfortable doing, like asking for advice. I don't know if I think I, I guess I don't maybe think that he gave them the advice that I felt like was the most valuable in that moment. But that is totally between them and as players as people as you know their relationship um so just thinking about that the withholding of the of the competition held a power that maybe in 1968 like the co- competition was an ends to him the means to an end yeah the, well yeah i i think i i think i'm with you on where you're hitting on that i i kind of tend to think about what they did this summer as more of a strike than a boycott and the reason i think of that is i think it reflected the power that black athletes have in the sports world in general, but especially in the NBA um, and power, labor power, and they are the NBA. So they did have the ability to withhold their services and shut it down. Um, that's part of why I think going back to 68, why boycott didn't work so well is there wasn't broad enough support in a way from black athletes, but more than that, there weren't, there wasn't a critical mass across a lot of different Olympic sports to really make a boycott of those games work like a strike might've worked this summer. Um, but I think it is a very, what, what happened this summer is one thing it reminds us of is, is really how dependent um, some segments of our sports industry are on black labor um, and, and the, the power that black athletes hold because of that. Um, and that's where we're in a really different spot now than we were 40 years ago, 50 years ago. Um, but but I, I also, the other thing I would say is I think you use strikes in different ways. Different kinds of protests have different types of goal, goals and outcomes. Um, and I think um, like to strike is particularly powerful, I think, when you've got some demands that you're pushing for and something tangible and concrete. Um, if your intent is more to shape, call attention to things uh, or make people think differently, um, a striker boycott might be a way to do that. But the real goal is to get people talking and thinking. And so there's a lot of different ways that you can do that. And it's not always a boycott that's maybe the best way to do that. And I kind of think, too, I remember doing some interviews with reporters this summer, and I was thinking that. I didn't think that the strike would go very long because I didn't think they had demands that they were making. I thought they were using it to send messages. And so I think they only needed to do it a day or two. So it was more like a demonstration than it was a shutdown, a permanent mm-hmm. shutdown of something. Because I don't think they had, I, they had some quasi demands, but it wasn't really demands. It was more an expression of angst, of empathy, of anger about what was happening in society and forcing everybody to kind of appreciate those emotions, take stock, um, reflect on where the country was. And that, that's why I think that kind of wildcat strike really was effective. 
um, not for specific demands, but for calling attention and sending a message. Um, and it's kind of like part of the attention economy that star athletes really um, have tremendous capital in these days. It's about attention, sure. it's about awareness and, and they were able to focus and mobilize that um, by withholding those services in, the, in those couple of days. Yes, and I think um, I actually also, <laughs> I had meant to say strike, uh, wildcat boycott did not sound right to me when it came out of my mouth, but we were talking so much about the boycott in 1968. Yeah. Um, so the wildcat strike, uh, one thing I think that we were talking about this like pause, this saying like, you know, this is, it's too much to also have to work when we're seeing something yeah. like this happen. Um, uh, and I think that that has huge amount of power to just say like, we have to step back. This isn't right. And we have to step back and we don't know what we're going to do yet, but we can't go forward like this. Um, and to, to play under circumstances, you know, we have all understood that, uh, the, this bubble that the NBA created was not necessarily the most pleasant place, even though they are getting paid a lot of money. It was a, it was a hard time for many players and to also, you know, be separated from, uh, to, to just be seeing, you know, how, how, um, you know, Jacob Blake in this case was, was, uh, treated, um, and, and how, you know, he just shot in the back. So I, I think that like, uh, there's just, um, I'm losing my thought now. Um, it's just like, well, I, there's so much value in that pause. Um, and, uh, yeah. I like your point about the pause. I, mean, I think that was kind of, to me, expressed a real humanness and a, and a real solidarity uh, with what lots of Black Americans were feeling and, and what they were feeling. And it's a, it to me was a insistence on our humanity. Uh, we're not just performers. We're not just athletes. Um, we're not just going to go out and, you know, do the song and dance because we had it scheduled. I think there's a power in asserting their humanity by demanding that pause. And I think, I think that's a nice phrase. I think that, uh, that I kind of still like the wildcat idea you had, but I especially like the pause here too. I think that pause itself was pretty, it was a pregnant pause, of, uh, which is to say a lot of meaning in it, a lot of humanity and that breaks down, I think, expectations about who athletes are um, and who and, 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 and how black Americans are supposed to behave. Um, it's a different vision and it, it sent that message loud and clear. Yes, and I, I think that just, you know, maybe we should all, if we all paused a little bit more around such horrific events when we see that type of violence or, you know, it just, I think that there's something to be learned within that pause for just, our everyday experience of taking in right. sort of like the injustices, the problems, systemic racism, um, a willingness to step back and say like, this is wrong and uh, I don't know how to fix it, but I'm not gonna do what I'm supposed to do today, <laughs> according right. to whoever, <laughs> there's a power in that. Um, Absolutely, yeah. and that's where I think that harnesses some of the potential of sport, not only to be a distraction, but to be a moral uplift. Um, and not just because we're inspired by the human physical capacity that we see, but by the broader creative potential, the human empathy, um, the humanity, um, and that sports part of the world, not outside of it. Um, that, that to me, ironically, is where the break on taking a pause from sports kind of reconnects the sporting world to the real world. Um, and I think that's, it's like, 
what we really have to struggle to do all times if we are of the mindset that sport is a good thing for people, is a good force in society. That doesn't happen automatically. Um, and it definitely doesn't happen when sport is held in disconnect from the rest of the world that, uh, that we live in. It, it happens when it's real people whose athletic identities are connected with their human identities and, and their um, social challenges that they face, that their communities face. And when those get brought together is when sport is most meaningful um, as a force for especially progressive, progressive kind of change. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, and, and so powerful for the bubble, which was literally isolated from the yeah. rest of the world yeah. where these players had to stay and could not really come and go uh, as they wished to be like, oh, we're still part of this world. We still... We still are seeing what is happening. We are still uh, very much aware of of the um, injustices, uh, even if we are being sort of isolated right now. It it had it it, it rang very. Um, it, it had a, a sort of a poetry to it. Yeah, that's a great point. Of, like that irony of the bubble, but trying to break out of the bubble, be connected with society. I think that that was a part of the power of what they did this summer. And, and I do think kind of in the larger theme, that's in the legacy of Smith and Carlos um, and, and not necessarily just the human being Smith and Carlos and their self-consciousness, but the, but the deeper meanings around that inspired Smith and Carlos in 68, the meanings around that image um, and what it says about race and sports. I think that's the tradition um, that, that the current generations of athletes are, are living into. Yeah, it's incredibly uh, powerful how it's uh, carried over and transformed. And even um, that you're, I think the last section in this book, uh, I'm going to find it. The cultural politics of sport and race in the post-protest era, like that now we're, we're no longer yeah. in that era. You know, that there's the, the protests, um, we're in a new, a new era of, of this type of uh, activism. Yeah, and that is a fairly recent thing. I mean, recent in the last five, eight years. But it is, I think, the bigger thing to rem we all have to remember is um, we had like a 30 or 40 year drought of that. Uh, yeah. where it really wasn't a lot of express politics, explicit protest, real attention to social issues. It was, it was kind of a sports world is pure and separate from everything else and will enjoy this era it's, it's really sh shifted back and, and i guess that's i forgot i had that title on it um at the end of the book but I, I think that's why i'm kind of energized and inspired to rethink um or, or to re really think through i should say what's happening in this moment uh in this black lives matter era of activism because i think it's it's reignited um ideas traditions passions um, and and the recognition of the of the possibilities for social change through sports. So, um, yeah, it's a new moment, a new era of, of uh, protest and activism in sport. And I think we can learn from that analytically and be inspired by it um, in in social in our real social lives. Well, thanks so much. I'm so glad we got to talk about this book, and uh, it's just a relevant conversation, maybe always, but especially right now, it seems. I really appreciate your questions too around the image, around the history of the project, and then about bringing this into dialogue with to today. Because 
um, those aren't always angles I get to think about. And so it kind of pushed me in some new directions and, and it was fun to kind of um, have to talk about some of the underlying or assumed things that, that we don't always get, I don't always get the opportunity to talk through. Great. Well, thank you so much, Doug. Um, have a wonderful uh, rest of your winter into spring. <laughs> Take care, stay safe, and uh, we'll talk soon. Thanks so much. It's great. Thank you so much. Bye.